Hello, friends. This is the AlphaList Podcast. I am your host, Toby. The goal of the AlphaList Podcast is to empower CTOs with the info and insight they need to make the best decisions for their company. We do this by hosting top thought leaders and picking their brains for insights into technical leadership and tech trends. If you believe in the power of accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. Plus, if you're an experienced CTO, you will love the discussion happening in our Slack space where over 600 CTOs are sharing insights or visit one of our events. Just go to alphalist.com to apply. This podcast is proudly presented by Storyblock, the CMS used by almost 200,000 developers and marketers in over 130 countries. Reducing complexities and inefficiencies across your digital infrastructure is a top priority for CTOs in 2023. Does your current CMS hinder agile development and deployment? Storyblock is a cloud-native API-first CMS that minimizes technical dependencies, enable your development team to create frontends with whatever technology they already know, and your business users to create content only once and publish on multiple platforms. As a CTO, choosing Storyblock means optimizing your tech stack's operational efficiency while making your team more self-sufficient. There are numbers to back this up. Storyblock cuts down development time by 50% and provides 582% ROI over three years, a study by Forrester proves. Visit link.alphalist.com slash CMS to get a free demo of Storyblock and learn how it can improve your speed to market. Welcome to the Alphalist Podcast. I am your host, Toby, and today with me is a guy who really understands developer productivity and developer experience. And his name is Abi Noda, and he's the CEO of getdx.com. And guess what DX stands for? It's developer experience. And he actually sold a company called Pullpanda to GitHub and worked for GitHub for a while. And, and really understand how to maybe not do it. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> maybe you can tell us a bit more today. So welcome, Abi. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. And maybe a good point to start is um, your personal nerd journey. Like, why are you a nerd? <laughs> if you still consider yourself a nerd. I mean, yeah, at least have the title CEO, which is not like <laughs> uh, chief hacker. Um, and, and, and yeah, why did you start? Yeah, it's a great question. Who am I? Uh, you know, I would describe myself as a programmer still. I still write code every single day. Uh, I'm also the CEO of a company, and formerly I've been in various en engineering leadership roles, CTO roles. And, you know, I always tell people, look, I am, I've spent the last seven years in this muddy space of developer productivity. I've spent way too much time. I need to get out of this space <laughs> soon. Um, but, you know, I was really just drawn into this. Uh, space organically when I first became a manager. And uh, I actually became the CTO of a startup based out in California. And a few months into the job, my boss, the CEO, came to me and said, hey, Avi, all the other teams are sharing metrics on how they're doing each month. Uh, could engineering do the same thing? 
<laughs> and I thought to myself, well, of course, yeah, of course we could share metrics. And uh, of course, as many engineering leaders know, once I actually bit into that problem, turned out that it was very hard to figure out good metrics that I could share with the business that also didn't offend my developers and actually meant something. And, you know, that experience really just sparked this now seven-year journey of what I call the elusive quest to measure developer productivity. But I'm still on this quest, still trying to figure it out. It's really, really hard. Uh, but that's kind of my my journey in the gist is just trying to crack this problem for way too long. And and how did you become a developer at all? And, and why? Yeah, great question. I actually, my father was a developer. Uh, and funny enough, growing up, I thought I would never want to become a developer because I just didn't think it was that cool. <laughs> But then uh, in high school, I built a website for like a computer gaming team I was on and really found that process to be enjoyable. And that sort of just evolved into more and more personal learning. And By the senior year of high school, I was actually looking for summer internships to, to get a little bit more into web development and uh, ending up, ended up finding a great opportunity and have been a professional developer ever since. And um, what did you enjoy most? Is it this, um, what, what uh, one of my former guests, uh, DHH, called the state of flow or, or what is it? I really like building products. You know, when I got into software development in high school, I started actually following people like DHH, 37 Signals at the time, uh, Fresh Accounting, Boag's World. Uh, I don't know if people listening will remember these folks, but they were, you know, a lot of kind of independent software as a service. I don't even know if the term software as a service existed at that point, but independent small software companies, often led by designers. I was really into design as well. And I just, fell in love with the idea that people could just create a software product and sell it and make a great living doing something that seemed really fun. So that's really what drew me in to software development and product design. Okay. And then um, you essentially started bootstrapping? <clears throat> well, I mentioned some of my early inspiration was companies like 37 Signals, Fresh, I think it was Fresh Software, that like or less, maybe it was like less accounting. They had a couple suites of products. So, you know, my foray into building software products was very much inspired by these bootstrap companies. And so uh, that was kind of the, the mentality I adopted from the very beginning. I started my first software service company or co-founded it with some friends in college, uh, you know, very small three-person company. It's still around today, uh, growing very slowly, but it's a great business for the folks still running it. Uh, and since then, I've bootstrapped. Uh, this is now essentially my fourth company. But have, I mean, we did raise some money, but you know, at the end of the day, I'm a bootstrapper at heart, and that's my preferred approach to building software businesses. So, so, so just just for some money, uh, whenever shit hits the fan, you have it on your account and you can use it then or what? Yeah, I think it does give you a the ability to take a bit more risk, right? When your balance sheet is a little bit padded with, with some money. I also think there's a benefit to, you know, our investors weren't just VC funds. They were individuals who I felt could add value to the company either through aligning their personal brands with us or through being able to provide advice. So um, th there's definitely value in having investors who add value, you know, pad your balance sheet a little bit. But uh, you know, our company is still not built with the sort of uh, 
typical, you know, VC-backed sort of approach to, to growing a SaaS company. Cool. And, and uh, yeah, um, I think some examples for people you have on board, but uh, it's like even partly team members, right? Uh, Nicole Fosgren, Dr. Nicole Fosgren, who um, essentially created uh, the Dora and the Space Frameworks and worked worked with you at, at GitHub, right? Um, or like she she was working for Microsoft, you for GitHub, which is essentially the same now. <laughs> um, uh, so that, that really speaks for your ideas, I guess. I think so. I mean, it's, it's definitely validation in terms of what we're doing. And it's also great to have people like Nicole. Of course, we also have folks like Dr. Margaret Ann Story, Dr. Michaela Grayler, uh, Gergay Oros, the pragmatic engineer. And, and really, you know, the funny thing is, I, I mean, I'm personally really grateful that they believe in me enough to, to kind of work with me and the company. But really, you know, what I think draws them into what we're doing is the same elusiveness of this problem. I think what really brings us together is this measuring productivity thing is so hard and no one's figured it out. And you know, we're all really motivated to, to align around the new approach to, to doing so. So what you do now is like kind of a, 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 the next iteration of, of measuring developer productivity. Before we come to that, um, like first of all, What is your what is the history of 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 of, of measuring uh, like, like like your your personal measure, measuring history like what what are your learnings on the way and um, like first of all like I mean why measure could be like the first question um, you you have like as of today in agile processes uh, you have retros you can kind of interact with your developers and I think what you do now is kind of a new approach to to to. <laughs> the reinvention of retros, that's how I see it a bit. Uh, like, yeah, why measure at all? That's yeah, a great question. I'm given a talk where I spent a lot of time pontificating about this question of why do we even measure? What are we even trying to do here? And I mean, there's a lot of different angles to this. There's uh, a very commercial and organizational reason. And then there's a more individual, which, which I'll share. But, you know, for a lot of businesses and tech leaders, there's a lot of being invested not only in engineering as a whole, but improvements that they're trying to drive within engineering, whether that's uh, you know, hiring more managers or uh, replacing old tooling or putting in place internal platform teams and developer productivity teams and infrastructure teams whose job it is to drive productivity. And when you're spending all this money on all these different initiatives and people, you need a way to know if what you're doing is actually working at all, and if things are actually getting better. And so uh, it's a very existential reason for needing a way to quantify or at least understand the impact of investments being made. Um, at a more personal level, individual level, I think the same applies. You know, People in those roles, in those leadership roles, whether you're the CTO or the VP of infra or developer productivity, If you, if you have no way to convey the progress you're making and the, the impact you're having on the business, that's a big problem for anyone in a leadership role. And then at a more personal and fundamental level as humans, like we want to feel competent and purpose in what we do. And when you have no way to actually see how you're doing and know if you're getting better, it's, it's hard to feel fulfilled and immersed in the actual work we're doing. So it's very organizational and individual. And you know, one of the things I think is that the individual reason, well, I would say both reasons are so powerful that they've gotten us in a lot of trouble because 
to fulfill those needs, we often succumb to using the wrong metrics or harmful metrics, as, as we know, uh, to solve those problems. Mm. Yeah, working as a developer can sometimes feel like being in a in an endless loop um, of, of of sprints, right? Like, ah, yeah, sprint planning, sprint planning, sprint planning. And then you kind of, I don't know, produce something which is then partly used, partly not. Um, and uh, then people shout at you, ah, oh, you're my most expensive cost center. Like, what, what, do you, what do you spend all the money on? Like, what, what do you do there? Like, why, why is it so slow? Um, and um, that, that can frustrate you, Absolutely. right? Uh, while waiting for deploys. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, constantly waiting for deploys, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and, and that is like uh, the, the, the problem you want to solve, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's you know, a problem that exists at many levels, whether you're an engineer and there's a lack of visibility into the things that are impeding your ability to be productive, or if you're a leader who's getting asked by the business for what the heck is engineering doing, or are we is our engineering work even good? <laughs> you know? And you have no data to be able to have that conversation. Or if you're a developer productivity leader and you have no way to justify why your team should even exist. Like, is there even a problem with productivity? And if you're making investments, are you actually impacting it? So it really is a, it's such a fundamental problem. And that's why it's a problem that people have been trying to solve for decades mm -hmm. uh, in various ways and that we're still trying to solve today. Mm -hmm. um, uh, stepping back a little uh, with Pull Panda, like what did you do and why did GitHub acquire you? Pull Panda was my first attempt to solve this problem. Um, you know, at the time, I was trying to figure out this question to my boss of, you know, what what are the metrics that engineering can track and share? And when I went and spoke to mentors, CTOs, people who've been doing this for you know, 10, 20 years, I didn't get any real clear answers. You know, some people said, oh, we don't, you know, all the metrics are mean nothing. We don't do anything at all. Some people said, oh, yeah, we track, you know, commits or cycle time, blah, 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 blah. And so I felt, yeah, I realized that it's such an unsolved problem and I was motivated to go try and figure it out. And so Pull Panda did a number of different things, but one of the things it did uh, was a feature product called Pull Analytics. And Pull Analytics would basically pull data from your Git repositories and some Jira projects and give you out-of-the-box dashboards on the processes and activities that were occurring on your team. So these are metrics like pull request cycle time, pull request throughput, review turnaround time, uh, you know, work in progress, lines of code, commits, things like that. Um, and you know, I grew that company over the span of a year and a half. And uh, GitHub came along and told me that they wanted to, to get into those, all those spaces that Pull Panda was focused on, not only the, the metrics, but some of the other features we had built. Um, and, uh, you know, at the time, I was interested in figuring out how to kind of grow the impact of the work I was doing, uh, you know, certainly trying to bring it to larger customers and enterprises. Uh, through GitHub, the opportunity to leverage the the researchers and the research that existed at GitHub and Microsoft was really compelling to me. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it just made sense as the next step in the journey. And um, so, yeah, in May, I think 2019, Pull Panda was acquired by GitHub, and I ended up basically continuing my work at GitHub of trying to figure out how to measure productivity. Okay, and did that work out? Well, so. Uh, 
I learned a lot. <laughs> did, I, did I crack? Did I figure out how to measure productivity? No. Uh, did I learn a lot about, did I form a hypothesis about how it needed to be solved? Yes. And, you know, this happened at several different levels. Uh, you know, one was that Panda was used by over 1,000 organizations. So there's a lot of visibility we had into what was actually working, what was actually being used, how it was being used. And one of the things I noticed was that people just didn't seem to be using the data that much. Uh, people were really excited about poll analytics when they heard yeah, about it. Setting it up, yeah, <laughs> and then never using it. Yeah. Exactly, setting yeah. it up, seeing the charts for the first time. But when, when we would look at the actual user activity and engagement and follow up with teams, we just found that you know, people just weren't using it that much. And when they were using it, it was for a very narrow use case. It was for, oh yeah, we review this in our retro just to you know, look at what pull requests we haven't closed. It wasn't, it wasn't about productivity. It was more pull request hygiene. Mm. And so I felt pretty unsatisfied uh, with that. Um, another thing I saw was that sometimes I would catch organizations using the data in ways that I felt were wrong. So an example is uh, Panda didn't have a CSV export. But sometimes I would see .csv URLs added, people trying to like hit URLs <laughs> and download. And so I'd reach out, hey, like, why were you trying to export this data? And they would say, oh, we have performance reviews coming up. <laughs> and I would think, what? What are you like? What are you trying to use this for performance? So um, that concerned me as well. So at a high level, when I sold the company to GitHub, I felt like the, the pull request metrics, I was pretty unsatisfied with them. I, I didn't feel like they were really solving the problem. And I was interested in trying to figure out a better way. When I went to GitHub, I thought I would find answers there. In particular, Dr. Nicole Forsgren had all joined GitHub shortly after I joined GitHub. Mm. <clears throat> there were lots of researchers, experienced leaders. So I thought that we would be able to find a, a better way. Um, the, the, the short version of the story is I spent about a year and a half. We, we tried the GitHub metrics again. GitHub wanted to, to roll out a product to capitalize on what they saw as that opportunity. And when <laughs> I, one of the funny things, we, we tried staff shipping that product, which had the pull request metrics, and people hated it. <laughs> like managers told us like, get this, this data scares me. We don't need this data. All I care about is my developers are happy and productive. Like get, get the, it, it just fell flat. Not only that, at the same time, we were trying at GitHub at the executive level to measure and understand engineering velocity and drive transformation. This was shortly after the Microsoft acquisition. There were new executives. They were trying to, you know, GitHub had to ship faster. That was a big goal of the company. And so um, I remember our SVP of engineering, I had opinions on what we might measure, but SVP said, hey, we need the Dora metrics. We need the Torah method. That's what we should be measuring. And I had my skepticism, but it was the first time I was actually going to be able to use the Dora metrics in an organization and actually see how they would work. And my experience was that we spent almost two quarters just 
implementing the door metrics for a subset of our repos because it's really hard to actually instrument a bunch of different yeah. systems across yeah. the organization. Yeah. Got that data into Looker and it didn't really tell us anything. I, it was just some lines on a dashboard. And when it came to, okay, how do we actually improve those numbers? We had no answers either. I remember going to Nicole saying, hey, Nicole, we're supposed to like just improve these numbers. How do we do that? <laughs> and she said something like, hey, like, well, we could tell every VP to like increase their lead time by 20%. And then they tell their man, you know, <laughs> it, we were lost. So that that's what my experience was kind of okay. like. It, it, it reminds me a little of um, almost every managerial term you introduce to a company like you do to a company right like we have to introduce okrs like urgently <laughs> let's do it <laughs> yeah uh, and then yes. you find yourself like half a year later like really having spent like lots of money and resources on on, on something you just don't find very valuable right um, because you fall into that yeah buzzword trap again <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't want to, want to, want to, want to, um, I don't know, compare that too much. Well, I have something to say. Yeah. You know, they say there was a study done that said that the main happiness that is derived from like vacations is like the anticipation of actually going on vacation. So it's the time between booking the vacation to going on the vacation. Just thinking about the fact that you're going to go on vacation is where we actually derive the most happiness. Mm -hmm. And it makes me think about like <laughs> metrics. I think the, the vision, the idea of having metrics, if you don't have metrics, is very powerful. But then when you actually have the metrics, it's kind of a fallback to reality where, you know, what, do you, what do we actually do with these things? What are they actually telling us? And that's one of the kind of psychological phenomena I think is at play in the the hunger and desire to, to measure things by leaders. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This podcast is proudly presented by WorkGenius. Are you ready to revolutionize your hiring process? Look no further. Get ready to unlock the world of stressful hiring for your business. With WorkGenius, hiring freelance professionals becomes a breeze. Say goodbye to long and tedious processes. WorkGenius offers you fast and confident hiring, tailored to your unique needs. Whether you need a top talent for short-term projects or a team for long-term collaborations, WorkGenius has you covered. Trust is essential when it comes to hiring. That's why the folks at WorkGenius handpick professionals through a rigorous screening process. They ensure that only the best candidates make it to your doorsteps ready to hit the ground running and deliver exceptional results. Imagine having the flexibility to bridge gaps during busy periods, add missing expertise to your projects and kick off new initiatives with fresh perspectives. With WorkGenius, it's possible. They provide you with the talent you need precisely when you need it. So why wait? Visit workgenius.com slash alphalist today to access a world of talented engineers who are eager to contribute their skills and expertise to your success. Sign up there, talk to an expert and get matched with your future engineers. Then hire and start working. WorkGenius takes care of the rest. But um, some of the um, or parts of, of Dora are actually like in a way meaningful. Like, I mean comparing a company 
just the processes and, and infrastructure um, that has, let's say, is like 10 years older and has like a very low deploy frequency um, that, I mean, having a, a very low deploy frequency and, and, and very long cycles and a very hard, hard way to test, et cetera, et cetera, it, it's very frustrating for developers, right? It's very frustrating for the team and having obviously like a higher throughput is um, actually like a good thing, but it is at the end not really connected to the productivity of the developers. Um, obviously, it makes them more happy and um, like more productive if they can deploy every second and if they have a preview every second. Um, but it's it's more the maturity of the processes of the company and the and the and the infrastructure that really helps developers being productive, right? Um, isn't it that way? Absolutely. I mean, Nicole always says to folks, optimization of the Dora metrics is not the goal. Yeah. Right? I was like, optimization of the metrics is not the goal because the goal is to have a efficient process and a seamless process where developers can get stuff done. But the problem is when we take the metrics by themselves, like lead time and say, oh, lead time, we need to, to shorten it forever until it's down to zero. But that's not, you don't want lead time to be zero. So it's the problem really arises with treating the metrics as the goal rather than a signal to inform our broader understanding and investments to improve productivity. So b before you tell us what developer experience is, I actually like the term way better than productivity. And I, I guess that's also why you picked it. Uh, I mean, productivity sounds a bit sneaky, right? And in using Git history to, um, I don't know, uh, snitch on people uh, and, and, and spy on people, like uh, that, that's that's not the fine English art of doing things, right? Um, so doesn't yeah, like it doesn't feel like that. So uh, maybe tell us a bit more, like what 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 the the evolution of of, of Dora metrics is, and and uh, how you see it these days, um, or, or how you try to solve it better. Yeah. I don't know if you succeed this time, uh, and let's see who acquires your company this time. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think uh, you know, I think you asked about the history of measurement before, and I think of it in three chapters. Okay, chapter one was output metrics. And people have been tracking this stuff since the lines 80s, of code, like 90s. <laughs> lines of code, number of commits, function points. People still track number of PRs today, very popular. And let's just track the output of developers. And you know, what we know from research and experience is that it's, those measurements are very, very fuzzy, right? Because Pull requests aren't created equal. Tickets aren't created equal. You can have big pull requests, small pull requests. Uh, more lines of code isn't better. Those metrics are really fuzzy. I think they can give you a broad, in a broad population, a sense of kind of the direction and patterns in which things are going on. But the way they're used on individual teams or smaller populations of developers, we know is, is harmful. Not something you should do. The chapter two and the history of measurement is what I would call process metrics. And this is what I was really focused on with regard to Pull Panda. This is what Dora focuses on too, is, hey, let's measure the delivery process. Let's measure how long it takes for certain things to get done. 
It's measure you know, how long it takes to get a deploy out. And by improving the process, and by measuring and improving the process, we'll improve productivity. I think that the that this works to an extent. But the biggest problem with measuring process is that you never, that problem I talked about earlier with lead time, where it's like, what? Well, so what's the right number? What's actually good? What's a good lead time? Well, it depends on the team. If a team is, has to ship software through the Apple iOS store, their lead time is going to be very different than a small microservices team that can deploy 20 times a day if they want. So the problem with process metrics like cycle time, lead time, deployment frequency is that they lack context. They're, they're not, they don't normalize for the differences in workflows and types of software being delivered across an organization. And so there's a limit to what we can do with them. I think they're, they're useful when you're honing in on a specific problem and the measurement can guide you in understanding and improving that thing. But when we use them as our top-level signals of success or productivity, they're not really telling us much. They're, they're, they're very fuzzy, and they might not even be the right things. And so that brings us to chapter three, which is what I'm currently working on today, which is measuring experience, right? Measuring output doesn't really work with knowledge work. Measuring process is lacks context. It's, it's very difficult to contextualize the data we have to know if it's good, if it's bad or actionable. When we measure experience, we're really measuring the actual lived experience of developers themselves and asking them to give a signal into productivity. And there's a lot of, you know, measuring experience isn't the silver bullet. It has a lot of challenges and flaws and limitations. But really, I think the answer is if you can use all these three things together, if we can measure processes, if we can measure experience and keep an eye on output too, I think it's not to say you should never look at that kind of data. Um, together, these things can give you a much more complete view than any of these things individually. And so it's really, when, it, when it, you know, talking about measuring productivity, it's about having a not banking on any single metric or even a single approach, right? We need a mix methods. That's the research term for you know, mixing qualitative and quantitative data, uh, transactional and periodic data. Uh, we need as much data as possible and different types of data to, to get a holistic understanding of productivity. But if I don't want to holistic understanding, but just like a simple understanding, like where do I start? I mean, <laughs> it's also complex. I mean, just implementing Dora, just implementing Dora is like, it takes ages, right? Yeah, it's, it can take ages. Yeah. Well, so <clears throat> this we have an answer to, I think. Um, you know, Nicole Forsgren has written a previous paper where she discussed this exact topic. Like, how do you get started with measuring your DevOps pipeline? <clears throat> and the guidance she gave was start with surveys. Surveys are you know, much faster to deploy than instrumenting your 500 services <laughs> and hooking them yeah. up to Looker. Um, they can capture not only objective things about how systems and processes are working, but also sentiment, satisfaction, culture. And they can span across different teams and workflows in ways that are really difficult to do with 
instrumented metrics. And an example of this is that, of course, the DORA research program themselves gather data using surveys. They don't go instrumenting pipelines and a bunch of different organizations to produce their research findings and benchmarks. They, they use surveys and it's a much more practical approach to collecting that data. In our recent paper, the DevX paper, we said the exact same thing. We said, look, you need quantitative and qualitative data, ultimately. You want both. But the best way to start and make it started is qualitative survey data. It's much faster to deploy and gives you a much more comprehensive and holistic view of the system than quantitative data typically can at most organizations. So to answer your question, the guidance is you know, start with surveys. That gives you the broad view of how productivity is going. And then drill in deeper with you know, real-time data, quantitative data, and other forms of qualitative research that are more time-intensive. Time so uh, um, I'm predicting now that um, uh, the company to acquire you is CultureAmp, <laughs> who want to step into the developer space. So <laughs> let's see if that happens. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I um, So Lattice is one yeah. of our customers. Uh, they're a great customer of ours. And, you know, I don't, I don't think that other than the fact that we use a similar mechanism of data collection, aka surveys, I don't actually think there's that much similarity in what we do and who we work with is very different buyer persona than an HR tool. So, um, you know, in early days, we f were worried about whether there was a real market for the type of thing we're doing. And customers would ask us, hey, like, we have Glint. We have culture in them. How is what you're doing different? And I mean, that was a multi-part answer to that question. But part one was, well, we measure stuff pertaining to engineering. And these tools are all based in science and methodology on measuring general employee experience topics like culture and trust and autonomy, kind of broad cultural issues. So uh, yeah, it's but it's interesting that you bring that up. But But, but generally, it's really like, um, a, a valid comparison to to like a simple retro, right? Um, in a, in a, in a in a in a classical Scrum team, like there are also tools out there like Parable, etc., which you can use to to kind of every second week um, talk to your developers, spend like four hours, and then have something that you might use or might not use later on. Like this is what we want to change. Um, and then, um, like the team is a bit happier and continues to work. Like, is it? Do you compare it to that as well? Or, I mean, if you're a small team, if you're a manager of a team, and you want to solve developer productivity, you don't need metrics. Uh, I had this conversation with some folks at Google uh, on my podcast recently. They said, if you're a team of ten people, that like manager comes to them and says, "Hey, like, I what metric should I use for?" tech debt <laughs> on a team of 10. I mean, why don't you start by just talking to your team and ask, you know, ask like, do, do we have problems with tech debt? What types of tech debt? You know, where in the code base? So I guess the point I'm making is that a retro or just talking to people is, is, the, is a form of data collection and understanding of productivity. 
Uh, and it's, it's, I think, the, the means I would recommend for any small team. I think metrics and dashboards is often overkill for small teams, small groups. Um, so yeah, that's a great place to start and certainly very uh, synergistic with, with what we do. Mm. But if you are like a bigger org and you have many small teams, would you say it's it's something you would recommend? Like uh, as like the CEO or CTO, you want to know like how how are each of the teams doing? And I don't know if you talk to the managers of the teams, um, does it does it does it make more sense then, or is it like just something for very large enterprises where you have I don't know five hundred people teams, um, uh, and and is it tailored to that use case, or like how do you see that? As soon as you have more than one team. You want to be able to understand things relative mm. to one another. You want right. You, you want a common way to understand productivity, typically quantitatively, and that's where I think the retro kind of hits its limits, right? Because the retro, I mean, in theory, you could take a result of the retro and log some numbers or metrics or something in a spreadsheet and aggregate that right like yeah. i mean that but what we're essentially describing then is a crowdsource yeah, maybe, maybe maybe if someone from parable is listening <laughs> so, maybe that that's the solution uh yeah <laughs> just just track the metrics yeah exactly I, i don't think that would be wrong i you know i think um you know at a certain scale though you you want um an efficient approach that can quickly get data from the entire organization mm. at a you know fixed mm. point in time so um, but yeah, I, I've often thought about how a survey is just a structured retro, is what it really is yeah. at the end of the day. And it, it, is it also like, I mean, a retro means like a certain investment uh, in terms of time. Like, how quick is, is your approach or how quick is, let, let's say, the minimum viable approach? Like, I, I, I mean, developers don't have time. And like, ideally, it would be something that you can quickly shoot in when someone is, I don't know, uh, just like fired off a deployment and it's waiting for or 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 a build and is waiting uh, and and just thinking about like should I should I go smoking should I go uh, drinking coffee or whatever should I play ping pong uh, and then you instead get a, get a quick survey and uh, it, it feels like a like a like a like a relief like is it is it that or like how quickly um, can you do it well let's start with shorter is always better I mean, like ideally it would take a minute, but um, when you look at kind of the industry as a whole, I would say that developer surveys range from 10 minutes on the short side to 30 to 40 minutes on the longer side. Um, thinking like Google's survey, for example, I believe is around 30 minutes. At GitHub, our survey took about 30 minutes to complete. Um, and length of survey is just one variable in the grand scheme of things, when you're thinking about a survey program, other levers are, for example, how frequently you actually run the survey. So if you have a longer survey, you probably don't want to run it as frequently. Whereas I know, for example, Atlassian, they have a shorter survey that they run monthly. Um, so frequency and length are kind of two levers you can pull. Another one is sampling. So large organizations like Google, Shopify, they actually don't survey their entire developer population each time they run their survey. They actually only survey around a third, I believe, like each quarter. And by doing that, you know, it's less cost, less time required by developers in aggregate uh, filling out these different surveys. So you know, sampling, frequency, and length are three 
levers you can pull to kind of fine tune and find the right sweet spot when it comes to not over surveying people or not using up too much developer time to to just fill out surveys. Um, okay, and like getting back to the to the, to the start, like um, I, I just want to start. I know that you make make shorter surveys, I guess. Then um, or you like how, how does your approach work particularly? Like is it is it Slack or where 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 do people get that? Like is it and and how 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 quick is it for them? Yeah, so our surveys it depends because our platform is yeah. customizable. So so customers can add stuff that they want and they can increase the length. But we range typically between five mm -hmm. to fifteen minutes, and what we measure the time it takes for people to complete these it depends. For example, some people write really long comments. They might spend five minutes just writing one comment because they wanted to, whereas someone who isn't really you know commenting on on issues might go through the process in just five minutes. So it's variable, but uh, in terms of our approach, we always want to keep it as short as possible. Um, although there's actually interesting research out, like it's, there's interesting research around how much additional marginal length to a survey affects response and completion rates. And it's not, it's, I'm not a master of that science, but it's interesting because increasing survey length doesn't always decrease completion or participation rate or even the perceived effort required to complete it. Um, but in general, our you know, desire is to keep the surveys as short as possible because it's just, I mean, just thinking about the developer time for an organization and putting a dollar on that, there's a real cost to just people spending time on this versus working on coding. And 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 consumption wise, I mean, how like do you apply GPT or something and then like get a like generate uh, a, a really like easy to read like su summary for for the manager or how, how does it work? We've just started adding AI powered features like summaries that you mentioned, but um, you know, to, to date, our focus has just been focused. I mean, we we do provide data back to every part of the organization, whether you're the CTO, a VP, director, or just an individual team. We break down the results so everyone kind of sees their own report. And, uh, you know, making this information actionable, digestible, and consumable is has been a challenge. Um, but but today we we haven't focused so much on AI powered approaches to that, but rather just finding ways to you know, display the information and, and and provide recommendations on specific things teams can do in a way that's that's simple. Uh, one of the fundamental differences to Git analytics from my perspective is uh, the survey leaves control over to the filler, right? Like the one who fills out the survey has control and I think that's also the reason why it's it, it might be like get high acceptance rates and, and lead to like uh, an improvement in developer experience um isn't that like a flaw of the system as well some would argue that it is but we there's actually you know we have a good amount of data and even for example Dr. Nicole Forsgren in her research has a lot of da data to show that Dishonest responses are, are very, very rare in when, when utilizing an approach like this. And to help listeners understand why that's the case, let's first look at a typical HR survey, employee engagement survey, right? Those surveys ask questions about things like, 
do you like your manager? Right? Do you trust your manager? I mean, really sensitive questions with real consequences for individuals mm -hmm. in the organization. Our developer surveys, developer experience surveys, are usually sent from a developer productivity team whose job it is to, is to improve developer productivity, improve tools, evangelize better processes. And they ask about things like code quality or you know, the processes on your team, code review process or local development environment for the purpose of helping a team plan their roadmap. There's very little incentive to, to misrepresent or lie on a survey like that. And you know, when we've done validation studies where we've, you know, for example, cross-validate survey data against system data, log data, this is also a practice like Google does very actively. They're, they're always comparing multiple data points to, to check whether data coming from anywhere is actually valid and correct. Uh, and when we've done that, similarly, we've found the survey data to be you know, highly reliable and accurate. Understood. So um, let, let's say I now want to get started. Um, I, I'm a CTO. I run, let's say I'm the CTO of Rocket Internet and I have, uh, you actually work for Groupon, right? Um, uh, I, I have like 100 different companies and I want to start like centrally making sure that developers are productive. Uh, what, what would be your like free tips you would give me on the way as kind of your your gift for me? Yeah, I was just talking about this with a customer yesterday. This, so the prompt is, you're a CTO, you want to start doing stuff with developer productivity, you want to start a you know, developer productivity initiative at the company to accelerate things. Like, you know, what are some tips, right? Um, great question. So first tip, and a lot of companies struggle with this, is naming, like what to call this <laughs> initiative or thing. Um, you know, advice, don't call it developer velocity. <laughs> don't call it developer productivity. You know, names I would suggest are developer enablement, developer acceleration, or developer experience would be you know, my recommendation. For the same reasons we alluded to earlier, just the, the signal and the vibes it gives off to developers, you want it to be something that's enabling, not something that seems like people are going to get measured and fired if they don't have enough commits or whatever. So first step is naming. Second step is around measurement. Organizations spend years just trying to establish things like Dora metrics or just even debate internally, like what should they be measuring? And to get started, you know, I would recommend just, just start with a simple survey just on your own. Just, just ask some basic questions around how developers are feeling about their processes, their tools, their teams, the culture at the organization, ask them what's the main thing that's holding them back. Run this survey. That should probably give you enough actionable insight to know what next steps to take that will keep you busy for at least a year. There's usually so many things that need to actually be fixed that uh, you know when you actually ask developers what's wrong, you, you get a long list of actionable things that your organization could be doing. The third is especially if you're a larger organization, like in this example, would be to you know, establish a function around this. You need, at the very least, the person, not the CTO, right, who's kind of in charge of this 
initiative, the developer experience initiative or program or whatever. And there needs to be a team that's really thinking about the problem strategically, that's analyzing this data, whether it's coming from surveys or elsewhere, to, to figure out what are the right investments that need to be made to be communicating and evangelizing that to the developer population. Because half the value you get out of this is just letting developers know that improvement is mm -hmm. coming, that mm -hmm. people care, right? Developers leave organizations mm -hmm. when they feel like things aren't going to improve. So having a team that's the, you know, represents the work that's happening, that communicates it, that drives it, um, keeps the organization updated, um, analyzes the data, reports that back to the organization is uh, really important. And, you know, that's, I think, a trend we're seeing right now in the industry is a huge rise in dedicated, lots of different names, developer productivity, developer experience, enablement, infra infrastructure, platform, engineering excellence, developer acceleration, whatever you want to call it. Lots of dedicated teams focus on internal developer productivity that are doing this type of work. So those would be my three tips. Thanks. Yeah, very helpful. Um, uh, like as kind of my, my outro question, um, I have a little surprise for you. So I, I guess from GitHub, you might know, you might remember Chris Wendroff, right? I, I guess he was he was CEO when you were there, right? Or what already Ned Friedman? Was who again? Who again? Uh, Chris Chris Wendroff. Or was he already gone? Like he, he was the CEO before Ned. Um, oh, he was the CEO. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So yeah, I joined. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. The founder, you mean? Chris. Yeah. Yeah. yeah one of the founders. And, <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. I joined <laughs> GitHub after the Microsoft acquisition. Ah, uh, so yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you, you, you don't you don't know him then. Okay. Uh, but he actually built a secret Easter egg into, into GitHub. And um, it actually allows you to manipulate the history view of, of GitHub. You just like very simple hand in a time travel get parameter and you can um, actually make it travel back in time, like in reality, physically. Wow. And we we now like I open up like the history view on my computer and um, I hit the hit or I add question mark time travel and then your name, Adrian Oda uh, in 2011. And um, you actually just started working as a software engineer for Groupon, like the yeah. company we just mentioned before. That's and funny. you were like, yeah, it was a funny time. I guess you were like heavily grinding um, yeah. as it was like really a hard time, I guess. Um, <laughs> fighting city deal, etc. And um, you now have the chance to whisper something into young AB's ears. What would it be? Keep bootstrapping. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's that's also great advice to our listeners, right? Um, I mean, that's um, I think also what many engineers don't really have on their radar, like the power you have in the modern world of SaaS. Absolutely. I mean, you know, Paul Panda for most of the company's life was a one-person company. I mean, so <laughs> when you think about the leverage of a single engineer, right? That's something. We've tried to have a have as a cultural principle here at DX, even though we have you know a larger engineering team. But to always think about how can we get the same level of leverage out of every engineer at DX that we had with Pull Panda. Does it work? <laughs> For a lot of DX's early days, we had one engineer per product, mm -hmm. and I would always talk about Pull Panda as inspiration for that. I said, "Look, I did it. <laughs> why why can't we all do it?" Um, you know, now as the business has grown, we're not quite 
you know, adhering to that principle anymore, but uh, the, the aspiration and the mentality around that remains. Yeah, it's 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 hard when you see like things getting out of control, right? I mean, <laughs> with like teams growing bigger than five, uh, it, it magically happens, and and that's a pity. Uh, and and yeah, really good idea to like really staff small teams, like three people teams, right? And yeah. small and effective designer included, etc. Yeah. I like that. So yeah, great discussion today. Um, really like it, and. Um, Happy to to chat again about about DX in the future and see your like like how your company is progressing. Uh, and maybe like a few people want to sign up at Get DX. Maybe you send us like a voucher or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite expensive. <laughs> it's expensive, but uh, you know, let us tell you about the ROI. You know, but um, no, I uh, I always love hearing from people if people have questions about getting started with developer productivity, developer experience in their organization, or if they're just if you're out there having internal arguments and debates about what you should be measuring, uh, you know, I love helping and speaking to folks in, in these positions, regardless of whether you have interest or fit with our product or not. So I'm um, always happy to hear from people. Yeah, great, great. And and you actually write a newsletter, a blog, Substack, et cetera, like all on the topic, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, newsletter focused uh, primarily on research papers, in developer mm-hmm. productivity. So each week mm-hmm. uh, I do a summary, a digestible version of a, oh. a research paper uh, focused on developer productivity and um, you know share a lot of that on LinkedIn and then run a podcast where I speak with specifically developer productivity leaders uh, across the industry. Yeah, okay. So folks, check out abnoda.com. Uh, and yeah, Aby, thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, this is fun. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Alphalist podcast. If you like this episode, share it with friends. I'm sure they'll love it too. Make sure to subscribe so you can hear deep insights into technical leadership and technology trends as they become available. Also, please tell us if there is a topic you would like to hear more about or a technical leader whose brain you would like us to pick. Alphalist is all about helping CTOs getting access to the insights they need to make the best decisions for their company. Please send us suggestions to cto at alphalist.com. Send me a message on LinkedIn or Twitter. After all, the more knowledge we bring to CTOs, the more growth we see in tech. Or as we say on Alphalist, accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth. See you in the next episode.